My title today is Seven Things You Might Not Know About Breaking Bread, which is another name for communion. And I'm going to be going through the seven things, and then we're actually going to celebrate together. So the first question that you might ask coming out of the title is, why, Andrew, do you call it Breaking Bread? You don't call it one of the other names. Can you tell me what other names are used that people use? Eucharist? What other names? Communion? Lord's Supper? Why do I call it breaking bread? Does anybody know? Well, partly it's literally what you do, but there's an even better reason for that. It's what the Bible calls it. So in the Bible, it's almost universally called breaking bread. There's one time where the word communion is used for what it isn't. But when it's talking about communion with demons, but it's called uh, sometimes it's called uh, Jesus had the Last Supper with the disciples, but almost always it's called breaking bread. But the other interesting thing about it is because is that they also called regular meals breaking bread. So if you're going to have invite someone around for supper, you'd say, "Would you like to come around and break bread with me?" And so it was the name for the ordinary meal that they had. So why do you think people changed the name? Anyone like to hazard a guess why the name became changed? To make it more sacred. You've put that so well. Um, Because people, it became something that Jesus didn't intend it to be. It became some sort of almost superstitious thing. Um, and of course, you could, you had to then detach it from a normal meal because start off with it was just part of a regular meal. And we've sometimes done that at New Life Church. Um, but that is another sermon about how it changed and, and what, what went wrong in that way. So I'm not going to go down that road. What I'm going to just say, we're calling it breaking bread today. And, and I try and call that, call it that whenever I can, unless I'm, unless I'm going to confuse people. So my outline then is, uh, I first we're going to talk about the Old Testament and cultural background, and then I'm going to talk about why we do it and seven reasons, and this is the core of the message. And then, uh, who is it for? And then, how it was done in practice, um, which was the love feast, why it changed, and then how we should do it now. So that's my outline today, and I want to start off by talking about the cultural background. Um, what does it mean to eat together? So, uh, eating together in the time of Jesus and in many cultures of the world still today is something that's a public display of friendship. I, I heard a story of, a, of a, an explorer in the West Asian desert about a hundred years ago who was captured by raiders and uh, he was afraid they were going to kill him and he had the presence of mind to, to, um, to pull out this little, little um, food um, bar he had and he broke it in half and gave one to the, the chief and the chief sniffed it and took a bite and then the explorer took a bite of his and said, we've eaten together and then he realized, the, the chief realized he could not possibly do anything bad to this guy now because to eat together with somebody is such a powerful symbol. And that was true in Jesus' time. Eating together with a person was 
uh, a sign of, of unity with them and of friendship with them. Um, Paul talks about the problem of eating temple food, um, that uh, in, the, in those days, when you went to the butchers to buy food, to buy meat, you couldn't just buy meat. It would have been meat that had been offered to idols. That was just the only way you could do it because the place where you bought meat would be like dedicated to a particular God. And uh, Paul said, just don't worry about it. It's like the, the demon is nothing. It's just meat. Just eat it. But he said, if there's somebody with you who has a problem with this and they're going to be offended and upset and, and um, lead them into sin, then don't do it uh, for their sake. Um, but he also says um, to them that um, uh, that the that what we're doing now is is uh, uh, having fellowship with with God, and uh, you can't you shouldn't um, do something which indicates you're having fellowship with the demons. So, um, but he says, if you don't know where it's come from, don't ask. Let me just explain that previous verse a bit better. If people are assuming by you eating this meat from the butcher, that you're assuming that you're actually demonstrating friendship with the demons, don't do it. it you know, for your own sake, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with the meat. But don't allow people to get the wrong idea if they think you're trying to display unity with the demons. Is that clear? It's not my main point, so I don't want to spend a long time on it. But the point is, in the culture, eating with somebody is really significant. Um, so, um, uh, we go, if we go to the, um, let's go to the Old Testament background of uh, uh, this. There's an amazing time, um, two, two occasions where the symbolism of eating is very strong. So one of them was when Israel came out of Egypt and they, went into the promised land. When they left Egypt, God saved them in an amazing way. And you may remember part of that was by sacrificing a lamb and the blood was around the door to mark that they had done this to to worship God. And they were then to celebrate a meal, which was the Passover meal, which was a hurried meal. They would get together. It was the last meal before they left. And that meal was symbolized during this uh, event with God. And God said, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So in other words, so, so this meal, this Passover, which the Jews still keep today, this Passover is a memory of something that happened, a memory of freedom. And eating it is done in honor of that. Um, then later on in Exodus 24, we have an extraordinary event that's happened. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now, this must have been some kind of a vision that they were taken up in. Um, and in this uh, 
transcendent state they went up into with God, they ate and drank in the presence of God, which was an incredibly powerful symbol because God doing this with them is was, was a sign of a covenant he's making with them. Which brings us on to another point in terms of the Old Testament background. I've talked other times about covenant, and I won't reiterate the whole thing, but a covenant was the was the ancient way of, of making a contract between people, and not just in the Bible, but in ancient other ancient uh, cultures, and we can find archaeology evidence of covenants. And in a covenant, you'd, it wasn't just like a legal agreement where you'd, you'd sign something at the bottom. A covenant was a personal commitment between two groups of people or two people. And when you made a covenant with somebody... You would uh, you'd do various enactments of it, and maybe it would be written down. But then, very often, you would celebrate this with a meal. And that would be the covenant meal, which would be like a symbol of this commitment you had to one another forever. Because covenants were, were forever. And so this meal that in Exodus 12 and in Exodus 24 was celebrating the covenant that God made. And this is a really good background for what we're going to celebrate because this is the new covenant. And so you can think of it like eating and sit, sitting down and eating and drinking with God as a, as a, a statement that this is forever and eating with somebody is a commitment forever. Now this is what's going on behind this in the Old Testament. New Testament, we see some very interesting things about eating together. Was there anybody who, in the New Testament, you remember who got into trouble because of who they ate with? Jesus did, yes. So Jesus shocks people. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. In other words, he's a tax collector, a bad guy. Follow me, he said to him. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what's going on there? What's happening? Um, the uh, Jesus is eating with them as a symbol of community with them it's not just it's not just like what we do is we, we just sit down and eat i mean you can go to, to mcdonald's and you know there's an, an empty space at a table and you sit down and you eat your fries and somebody else is next to you you're not going to say wow you've got a lifelong commitment to this person because you've eaten with them no it's of almost zero connection in our culture it's almost gone it just means nothing and so it's important for us to stress this because what we're going to do does have all that cultural stuff with it. What we're going to do has this symbolism. It's a commitment. Those people eating together, which is us eating with God, are saying something about a relationship which has an ultimate level of commitment. So to summarize then, the cultural meaning is much stronger than in our culture. It's a powerful idea of expressing unity by eating together. Expressing unity by eating together. So I don't know if in Iranian culture, whether it's a different, is it stronger eating together more? more it is, yeah. yeah. What about in South America? And I guess it's more there as well. Yeah. So, so uh, in, I think particularly North American culture has kind of taken the symbolism out of eating together. And so it's very important to state this point and to emphasize it. And so Jesus is thought of as being here 
and being part of the, universe, the, the unity expressed as we eat together. We're thinking of Jesus' presence with us. This is very important. And so I'm going to go through seven reasons why we do this. And I've already mentioned one of them uh, when I was talking about the Passover. We look back as we remember Jesus' death. There's the idea of looking back as they look back on coming out of Egypt uh, and God's salvation. We look back as we remember Jesus' death. And this is a key part of what we're doing. And Jesus talks about his blood being symbolized by the wine and his body by the bread. So second thing I have there is proclaim what he's done as a witness to others. So this might sound uh, curious, and so I'm going to give you the biblical basis for this. First Corinthians 11 and 23, Paul talks about this, this uh, the, the, the breaking bread together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's the first point that I said. It's it's a memory of what Jesus did. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you, as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's just look at those words there. What does it mean to remember Jesus' death? Well, primarily, it means just not to forget. It means to keep to mind, this is what he did for me. Don't forget what an amazing thing he's done for me. But the second question I want to ask is uh, verse 26. How does this function to proclaim? How can it actually proclaim something when we do this? Well, when we're having this, we are telling a story. By our actions, we're telling a story of what Jesus has done. And we'll unpack a little more of this later. But um, there's an amazing letter that we have back from just shortly after the, the, the time that these things were written um, in, in, in the Roman Empire. And what was happening was there was, a, there was a Roman governor called, actually, where do we go? There we go. A Roman governor called Pliny. And Pliny saw all of these Christians uh, spreading so fast. He didn't know what this Christianity was. And so he wrote a letter uh, to the Emperor Trajan, less than 100 years after Christ, he wrote a letter to the Emperor asking for advice as to how to deal with these Christians. And he describes how they met. Now, this is amazingly useful for us because we actually get like um, first-hand observation, witness of what Christianity looked like in the first 100 years. You know, somebody who's not one of the Christians describing what it looked like. So his letter is absolutely, it's just so valuable for us. And um, what he said is, he was confused about these Christians. He asked for advice, and he says, this is a quote, it was their custom to disperse and to come together again to partake of food of an ordinary and harmless kind. Like they're not doing drugs together, they're just eating food together. <laughs> What's going on here? And so he's trying to, you know, why are these people, you know, all kinds of societies, like slaves, free men, everybody, they're all coming and they're eating and it's like it's, it's food. 
the reading. And so he was kind of, he was, couldn't figure out what these people were doing. Uh, but it's very helpful to us because it, it shows they're proclaiming what Jesus did. They're proclaiming the death of Jesus because people can see that Jesus' death has brought about this unity, this connection in him. So um, this is part of how this works. People wondered why these Christians spent so much time in each other's houses. They were impressed at the love of, and community, and it was designed to demonstrate this love and community. So that's, um, that's the, the first three points. Um, actually, that's, that brings us to, to the third point. Demonstrate our unity in Christ. So this has uh, quite a bit written about it in First Corinthians. And Paul is telling them he has a problem with the way they're doing this because instead of showing unity, it's showing disunity. And I'd like to take us to this passage. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you can be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, see that's the reference, by the way, where it's not called breaking of bread. Every other time it is. And it says it's not the Lord's Supper. Um, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Um, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Uh, I will not, for I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you. And then the quote that we read earlier. So, so what does this look like? Well, suppose we had a, a time together and, um, and uh, we were all bringing food together. But rather bring and share, everybody brings their own. And Giovanni loves good steaks. And he's brought this most amazing steak. And he just sits there and opens it up. And he's just eating this delicious food. And Tom here is out of work, living on the street, and doesn't have any food. And he's so hungry. And he's sitting there and just looking at this food. And this is what's going on in the church. There's there's people who've got no food and people who are just like living sumptuous and it's supposed to show unity and the irony is it's in fact exposing the disunity within the church we'll skip over the bit that we read earlier Um, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner that's in a way that's showing disunity will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, in other words, the, 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 we are the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is craving food, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this is an important passage because it really stri- uh, emphasizes the importance of unity. Um, now, but unfortunately, it's led 
to a misconception which has caused damage in the Church of Christ for a long time. And the misconception comes from verse 27. The words I've highlighted in red, eating the bread or drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And the um, the idea that's crept into the church is you have to be worthy of eating the bread and drinking the cup. You have to be worthy of doing it. Now, who is worthy to, to, to receive Jesus' death and, and resurrection? Who's worthy? None of us are. None of, so, I mean, you'd think that would be a ridiculous argument to start with, but nevertheless, it's led to the idea that, oh, you need to find, is there any sin in you? If there's any sin in you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't partake. In fact, I received a magazine in the mail not long ago, and it had a big splash about this, you know, who is worthy? And it was the most wicked stuff in there. It was, it was a Christian magazine, but it was, it was saying exactly this kind of thing. In fact, um, who's the kind of person who's unworthy? It's the person who doesn't need it, who's never sinned. So that's the only person who's not worthy, is the perfect person. They don't need it. Um, This false teaching has been a scourge for Christians for centuries. In fact, some Christian traditions, you have to go through months of preparation before you take to make sure you're pure enough before you do it. And uh, I've come across people who've stopped participating in breaking bread because they feel guilty, which is a terrible thing. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, in Jesus was a priest. He was the one who comes between us and God and sacrifices for us and cleanses us. In the Old Testament, they had you know the sacrifices, the lambs and so on, and there would be a priest. And if you sinned, you'd take your sacrifice to the altar and they'd be sacrificed. You'd go to the priest and, and they would pronounce you to be to be cleansed. So, um, so let me ask you, if you'd sinned, where's the place to go when you've sinned? If you've done something wrong, should you go to the priest or should you say, no, I'm too sinful to go to the priest? Well, that's ridiculous. Of course, the priest is there for people who've sinned. If you didn't have sin, you wouldn't need a priesthood. If we didn't have sin, we wouldn't need breaking of bread. We wouldn't need Jesus' blood and Jesus' body. So I hope I've dispelled this for you once and for all. It's not, when it says an unworthy manner, it's talking about eating it um, in a way that upsets someone else and makes them feel and creates disunity and division. That is what it's talking about. It's not talking about whether you've lived a pure life this last week. Um, so I hope all of us understand that we are, we have all of the entitlement that we need to eat this. We are all sinners. We all need Jesus. And so all of us can come and eat and drink. I hope we all understand this. Um, so I really need to emphasize this because it's been so damaging to the church. So let's then um, go back to uh, why we do it then. We come to Jesus as a priest who forgives our sins. And I want to say that this is a celebration. It's a time of joy, uh, not of uh, uh, not so much a time of mourning, but a time of joy. You know, if Jesus wanted us to to have a, a time of, of mourning, he would have given us different symbols, like something bitter and, and nasty tasting to to drink and unpleasant to eat, because we're supposed to be. Like, but he's given us the symbols of feasting. Uh, in order to celebrate this. So the focus is not on what we've done wrong, but the focus is that we are forgiven. That is what we are celebrating. 
So next question, why we do it. Number five, we do it to obtain a blessing as by faith we receive the benefits of Christ's death. Blessings such as increased assurance that we're not under condemnation, but we're free, we're justified. Blessings of joy um, and obedience leads to blessing. So I just want to, uh, to, to clarify something. There's a term called sacrament. A sacrament is something that you do that automatically gives you a blessing. It, this is the theory. So, for example, people who teach that you need to go on a pilgrimage, you could go on a pilgrimage, you know, in ancient times, you could go to the Holy Land and, you know, it would get, it would supposed to be a blessing. It really doesn't matter what your motive is or why you're doing it or what's in your heart. Just doing it gets you a blessing. And the idea around, you know, around, if you go around back to medieval times was that doing this would simply, would automatically give you a blessing, no matter what's going on in your, your, no matter if you're not even trusting Jesus, you automatically get a blessing. And the, the, the teaching was there are things you can do in the Christian life that like, you just do it and it's like a slot machine. You put it, you do the work and it, you get a blessing. Doesn't matter where you are in your, in your heart. So baptism would be the same kind of thing. You just do it. And um, so, and I, I trust that we 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 understand that that's not right. That that we don't do something that automatically gets us a blessing, and it's like just some something. That's not a teaching of the Bible. But nevertheless, there's the opposite teaching, which kind of makes it into, into a nothing. Well, you know, it's really it's just we're doing something, and you know, we praise God, and it's you know maybe it helps us a little bit. But there is something that goes on that God has said, you do this, and you believe it, you will get a blessing. And the term that's been used for this is a means of grace, a way that we can receive grace from God. And he's given us many means for grace, like prayer is a means of grace. Reading the Bible is a means of grace. Um, uh, doing um, Coming together like this is a means of grace. And what that means is that God has decreed that there is a blessing attached to doing it if you do it in trust and faith and obedience. And so I want to encourage you, there is a special blessing in doing this because Jesus has told us to do it. And if we do it and we do it uh, thinking of him, remembering him, we will receive a blessing. It's a promise, just as it is with baptism and other things he's giving us. And I want to tell you this to encourage you, expect to receive a blessing as we do this together. Obedience leads to blessing. It's a means of receiving God's grace. So um, why do we do it? The next point is it's a picture of depending on Jesus for sustenance. <clears throat> That's why it's something we eat. It's not something like we rub on our body or something else that we do. He's given us food to eat because it's a picture of uh, sustenance. Can you think of any time in Jesus' ministry where he used a symbolism of something that sustains us as to what he gives us? Yes. He said he was the bread of life. Yes. When he fed them with bread from heaven, when they're feeding of the 5,000, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, Moses gave you manna from the wilderness, but I am the bread of life. And many were confused and some people left him at that point because they didn't like this teaching. Another time that Jesus talked in the same sort of language, give you a clue, it was next to a well where there was water. 
the, yeah, the woman, Samaritan woman, he said to her, I'm the living water. Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. And she said, yeah, give me this so I don't have to come and fill water. And she understood. I mean, she was taking it too literally, but she understood he's talking about sustenance. He's talking about something that actually keeps us going. And so as you are drinking and you're eating later, just have that sensation. I am actually receiving some sustenance from Jesus. He is my life. He's my empowerment. It's a similar image to the vine and the branches. You know, the sap flowing into the branches because we're dependent on him. His power flows into us. His life flows into us. And so that is a key part of the imagery that's going on there. Living water, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, vine and the branches. So, coming back then, uh, the last of these, we look forward to feasting with Christ in glory. We look forward to feasting with Christ in glory. And uh, we can see in, in many places, this is talked about Jesus um, as he finishes the Last Supper with disciples. He says he's going to celebrate it again in glory with them. Um, and uh, and, I, and he's, the, the man on the cross, he talks about celebrating in glory with him, the, the, the other thief on the cross next to him. He says a similar thing. But one of the clearest ones is in uh, Isaiah 25 and verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of full, rich, full food of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And, and as we understand what's going on in Isaiah's prophecy, we see he's talking symbolically about Jesus' coming and the blessings of the, of the kingdom now, but these fulfilled in a more tangible way in the age to come. And so what we have here is like the starters for the big feast. This is like the first bits, you know, it's the starters, it's the taster. I don't know if you've been around a supermarket where they're handing out samples and you taste it, hmm, that's good, I'm going to buy some. This is like, this is the starter for the real thing. And um, so uh, this is something then that um, we should be excited about that it's going to be, it's going to be the real thing that's happening. Um, so, I'm just going to go briefly through some other things because those were the main things that I wanted to cover today. Um, who is it for? It's for everyone who's part of the body. In other words, for all of us, unless you're living in disunity, unless you're actually um, having a fight with someone else. And uh, uh, if, you know, as Paul says, if you're actually um, at, at odds with someone else who's here, that's the time that you might refrain from taking this because it's a lie that you're eating with them and you've got this fight going on with them. So um, if you have an ish, issue with someone else here, sort it out and then come both together and eat together. The other thing is I would say if you've got some kind of defiant behavior towards God, um, uh, and this would be similar to disunity, then you should repent first. So this is not about the sin that we fall into all the time, but if you're deliberately choosing, consciously, to, to choose something which is against God, you should repent from that before you partake of this. Um, if you're feeling very guilty of your own sinfulness, you're in exactly the right place. This is where you should be, because you can rejoice that it's healed. And I want to say that if you're not a Christian, then you need to decide because actually 
eating this is a statement of wanting to follow Jesus. And I've heard stories of people actually being saved as they eat this. They weren't quite, they didn't really understand it. And as they partook, oh, this is what it means to become a Christian. And they accepted Christ as they were taking communion. So I want to say to you that, um, that if you're not a Christian and then this taking it is a decision to follow him. It's a statement that you want to follow him. Um, so what about children? Um, uh, we want to ask, how was it done back then? Well, it was part of a meal. And the children would have been there at the meal. So the children would have been eating as part of the meal. They wouldn't be excluded from it. But, of course, as they grew up, as they became aware of what was happening, they could make a decision about where they're going to eat this in a, in a, in a way that they're following Jesus. Um, so um, the other thing is it was done as part of a meal. And as I said just for practical reasons, often we do it like this, but we have in the past, and I hope in the future, we've had it as part of our meal out there. And it's great to do it like that. There's great evidence in the Bible that it was done as part of a meal, and there's evidence from history. In fact, what they would very often do is their cup would be at the beginning of the meal, sorry, the bread would be at the beginning of the meal, breaking bread, and they'd end the meal by drinking the wine. And it's, if you look at carefully at the Last Supper, it seems that's what Jesus was doing there as well, because he was copying the order of the, the uh, Passover, and that's what they would do at that time with the Passover. But anyway, that's another sermon, and I'd like to just wrap this up right now, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come out right now, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to now celebrate this together, and I'm, I'm going to leave this up here, and because I want us to be able to just go through that and remind ourselves of all the things I've been saying, but I would like to encourage everyone here to pray out loud, if that's not too scary, um, during the times in our celebration when there's an opportunity to do that. And the reason for that is because I'd like us to emphasize today that this is something we're doing together. We're, we're doing this in unity together. And so by praying out loud... Uh, you're participating in that. Now, I recognize some of us are more comfortable with that than others, and so I'm not going to put a guilt trip on you, but if you are comfortable with praying out loud, then please do when, when, when Braden invites you to do that, because that really emphasizes that we are doing this together as a community. It's not something that's kind of just done from the front, and we, we the holy ones, are giving you something that we're imparting to you. So uh, I'm just going to, to pray now and to thank God for this, and then we're going to go, I'm going to hand over to Braden, and we're going to, to celebrate this amazing thing. Thank you, Jesus. We remember you. We praise you. Our sins are forgiven, that we can come into the presence of the pure and perfect God as children with washed clean, washed white as snow. We thank you. And we can look forward to an eternity of enjoying your presence and feasting with you. We thank you. Bless us now as we celebrate this. Bless each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.